The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Putting the Pieces Together. Would you recognize acute hepatic porphyria if you saw it? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DQY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Hubert Albonkowski, a professor of medicine and molecular medicine and translational sciences and director of the Laboratory for Liver and Metabolic Disorders at Wake Forest University School of Medicine and the North Carolina Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. In this activity, we'll discuss selected patient case scenarios designed to encourage timely recognition, diagnosis, and treatment of patients with acute hepatic porphyria in an effort to improve the outcomes, overall health, and quality of life of patients with AHP. I'll get us started by giving a very brief overview of AHP. AHP is a group of rare inherited disorders with the most common form, AIP, affecting about 5 to 10 individuals per 100,000. Genetic screening has recently suggested that the prevalence of a mutation carrier is more common, occurring in 1 in 1,500, but the clinical penetrance of symptomatic AHP remains low at about 1%. It's caused by mutations in enzymes in the heme biosynthesis pathway in the liver. There are four types, each associated with distinct enzyme defects, and the symptoms result from accumulation of heme precursors and their adverse effects, especially delta-aminolivinic acid, or ALA. The pathway of heme synthesis involves a series of eight steps, with the first step being the condensation of glycine plus succinyl-CoA to form this first committed intermediate in the pathway, delta-aminolivinic acid, or ALA. And this first and normally rate-controlling enzyme, ALA synthase, is absolutely key to the entire pathogenesis of these disorders because it's an uncontrolled overexpression, upregulation of this enzyme that, along with these more distal defects in heme synthesis farther down the pathway, give rise to the marked overproduction of ALA and to the development of symptoms. Now, the four diseases include ALA dehydratase porphyria, which is extremely rare and is an autosomal recessive disorder, so that the few people that have been described with this deficiency have very severe defect in the activity of this second enzyme in the hemosynthetic pathway, namely ALA dehydratase. More common is acute intermittent porphyria, AIP, in which the defect is in the enzyme called porphobilinogen deaminase, which carries out the next step after the formation of porphobilinogen from two molecules of ALA. Farther down the pathway, the enzyme coproporphyrinogen oxidase, when deficient, can give rise to another acute hepatic porphyria called hereditary coproporphyria, as can deficiency in the pene ultimate enzyme in the heme synthetic pathway, namely protoporphyrinogen oxidase, which gives rise to the acute porphyria that is known as variegate porphyria. The acute porphyrias are not considered often enough in the differential diagnosis of commonly seen symptoms, such as abdominal pain. Symptomatic attacks occur primarily in women during their reproductive years with a primary symptom of abdominal pain. 
perhaps due to intestinal dysmotility from autonomic nerve injury. Misdiagnosis is common, which frequently results in unnecessary medical procedures, severe pain, emotional stress, depression, anxiety, and reduced patient quality of life. Individuals with acute hepatic porphyrias frequently receive insufficient pain treatment and are often viewed as drug-seeking. Many of the medications used to treat some of the nonspecific symptoms of porphyria are drugs that can actually precipitate or worsen acute attacks, pointing up the importance of making or excluding the diagnosis early on in the evaluation of patients. Untreated attacks can result in irreversible long-term neurologic damage, including seizures, permanent paralysis, coma, neurologic damage, or even death. In the remaining program segments, you'll have the opportunity to select different case variables and decision points designed to encourage timely recognition, diagnosis, and treatment of patients with AHP to improve outcomes, minimize disease impact, and reduce the burden of disease. Please make your first case selection. Christina is a 23-year-old woman with severe abdominal pain and dark urine, prompting a visit to her GYN physician, worried that she may have a urinary tract infection. She is found to be afebrile, but with complaint of very severe pain, 9 out of 10, diffuse in the lower abdomen, started several hours ago and has worsened gradually. It's not associated with GI function. Blood pressure is elevated, 152 over 100. Heart rate is just at the border of tachycardia, 100 beats per minute. She reports that she is taking oral contraceptives. The routine lab studies show essentially normal findings, except that the urine is dark. However, the urine culture is negative. There's a normal CBC, electrolytes, and renal function tests. Liver tests show a mild increase in ALT and AST. She's on day 23 of her menstrual cycle, which is usually 32 days in duration, and she describes the pain as increasingly severe, abdominal, pelvic, and lower back, with limited oral intake due to gradual onset, nausea, constipation, and occasional vomiting. She reports her last bowel movement was two days ago. She denies any recent weight loss, trauma, travel, rash, or fevers, evaluations for gallstones, pancreatitis, appendicitis, and endometriosis are all negative. So her clinical presentation is consistent with the classic triad of neurovisceral symptoms that are commonly seen with AHP. Severe pain, almost always pain in the abdomen, although there can be pain elsewhere in the back and the extremities as well, there may be neuropathies, especially if the disease is progressive. It is not uncommon to have tachycardia and hypertension, evidence of increased sympathomimetic activity of the sympathetic nervous system. Sometimes there will be hyponatremia, and when low serum sodium, certainly less than 130, this should be a huge red flag that should make you think, maybe this patient has acute porphyria, I must do the appropriate screening test. Often when asked, these people will report reddish or brown urine, although that is often missed because people don't ask the question. Usually the liver tests are normal, although they may be slightly increased. And there are, unfortunately, some patients that have chronic symptoms, not just acute symptoms, so what are the clinical criteria used to establish the diagnosis? 
As always, the initial assessment should include a history and physical examination with a baseline neurological assessment and baseline labs, which usually don't show a great deal. The first-line biochemical testing is to get a single-spot urine for urinary porphyrinogen, delta-aminolytic acid, porphyrins, and creatinine. And it's important to include the creatinine because that allows us to normalize the results of the other analytes to the concentration of creatinine. Usually the upper limit of normal for ALA is up to 7 milligrams per gram creatinine and for porphyrinogen it's up to 4 milligrams per gram creatinine. The testing should best be done at a time when the patient is symptomatic or within, say, about a week of symptoms because the elevations may decrease in between attacks. Second-line biochemical testing involves more thorough assessment of other porphyrins to make a specific diagnosis as to which type of acute porphyria it is. But the key factor is that if ALA and PBG in this single urine are normal, one has already excluded acute hepatic porphyria as a reason for whatever the symptoms of the patient are. Now, genetic testing is definitely recommended after biochemical testing has indicated that there is an acute porphyria present. And the genetic testing includes sequencing of these four genes, ALA dehydratase, HMBS or PBG deaminase, CPOX, copper porphyrinogen oxidase, and protoporphyrinogen oxidase. These are not 100%, but they are highly sensitive. So one can't absolutely depend only on genetic testing, but it's become very, very helpful to both confirm the diagnosis and to help identify at-risk family members. So the key points relevant to this particular case are the symptoms of abdominal pain, central and autonomic nervous system abnormalities, and peripheral neuropathy. These are the classic triad that should suggest acute porphyria. Dark urine and hyponatremia should be red flags. A single spot urine for ALA, PBG, total porphyrins, and creatinine. Loud results in this case reveal that she does have a markedly elevated porphyrinogen, establishing a definitive diagnosis of AHP. The next steps, if clinically indicated options for treatment and prevention, should be discussed, and we'll talk about that more in later case segments. Genetic testing, genetic counseling, family planning should also be discussed as appropriate. Connor is a 23-year-old man with recurring severe abdominal pain who was referred to a gastroenterologist by his primary care physician for further evaluation. When seen by the GI, the blood pressure is a bit elevated, the heart rate is elevated, the only medication is omeprazole, a PPI inhibitor. Labs show a mild increase in white count with a left shift, liver chemistries, mild elevations in ALT and AST with normal alkaline phosphatase and normal total bilirubin. He denies any recent weight loss, recent trauma, travel, rash, or fevers, but describes severe 10 out of 10 abdominal pain with frequent nausea and constipation and difficulty focusing. His last really severe attack occurred about six days ago. So thinking about this case, consider AHP as a diagnosis in all teens and adults 
male or female, with unexplained symptoms. But because this is 90% a disease of women who have reached menarche, the suspicion should be particularly high in young women, should be high in those with recurrent abdominal pain, certainly very high if there's a report of muscle weakness, if there's a report of peripheral neuropathy, if there's a presence of hyponatremia, and if on asking the patient or observing the urine, the urine is noted to be dark, reddish, brown, amber, variable color. The algorithm for diagnosing acute porphyriac attacks is, again, the rapid test for porphyrolinogen and creatinine in the urine. If that's normal, you've excluded acute hepatic porphyrias, at least AIP, HCP, and VP, as a cause of disease. Now, if one includes as well ALA with PBG in that urine, you've also excluded ADP, ALA dehydratase deficiency porphyria. So measure those from the same sample if both are normal, acute porphyria is excluded. If ALA is increased with normal PBG, then it strongly suggests deficiency of ALA dehydratase, and that can be confirmed both with enzymatic studies and with genetic testing. On the other hand, if PBG is increased, and it's usually increased at least four times the upper limit of normal during acute attacks, that makes the diagnosis of one of the other forms of AHP, namely AIP, HCP, or variegate porphyria. The initial treatment of acute porphyric attacks is the same regardless of which type of porphyria one is dealing with. So knowing exactly what the genetic defects are is not essential for uh, making the initial diagnosis and starting appropriate treatment as quickly as possible. The lab features during an attack, CBC is usually normal, although there may be a mild elevation and white count. Mild anemia may be present. Serum sodium may be low. Magnesium actually may be low as well. Liver chemistry is usually normal, although they may be mildly elevated, but rarely with any jaundice. The key findings, again, are the marked elevations in urinary ALA, PBG, in particularly acute intermittent porphyria, uroporphyrin is also elevated during attacks. Now, there is not a point-of-care test currently to assess urinary PBG. It would be nice if there were, but there isn't. So this is an unmet clinical need. These are send-out tests, and it usually takes at least a few days to get the results back, and it's important to follow up those results even if the patient is no longer in the emergency room or in the clinic. So the key points relevant to this case are that AHP is a rare disease, so it's not commonly considered, even when individuals present with typical symptoms. It needs to be considered more often, especially in patients with recurrent abdominal pain, neuropathy, muscle weakness, and especially in women who have reached menarche. Hyponatremia and dark urine should be huge red flags. Measuring PBG is not normally part of a standard workup of abdominal pain, so you have to recall that that is the key test. And the fastest way to establish or rule out a diagnosis is to qualitatively assess PBG from a single void urine. Qualitative tests, unfortunately, not generally available, so we have to order quantitative PBG and creatinine. And Finally, screening should be conducted around the time when patients are symptomatic 
and experiencing attacks. After several weeks, the urine may no longer show elevated ALA and PBG. Elena, 31-year-old obese woman, 17-year history of smoking, chronic recurring pain, managed on and off with NSAIDs and opioids. Her primary care provider referred her to a psychiatrist for further evaluation of anxiety and depression. And on initial exam, again, notice the blood pressure is elevated, the heart rate is elevated, the BMI is 35.5. Notable are a number of medications, including birth control pills, lorazepam, and a combination of aspirin, butalbital, caffeine for migraine headaches. The labs show a dark amber color urine with 1 plus protein, 1 plus ketone, suggesting that she hasn't been eating recently. Five red cells, five white cells, trace positive leukocyte esterase. Liver chemistries show a mild increase in ALT and AST, mild increase in ALKFOS with normal total bilirubin. On further history, this has been going on for at least 10 years, recurring every month or two, usually lasting several days, with no apparent precipitants. She had a similar attack about three weeks ago after recovering from a respiratory infection when it was treated with azithromycin and going out to have drinks with friends. The lab results that you wisely order reveal that she has a markedly elevated PBG, establishing a definitive diagnosis of an acute hepatic porphyria. Aggravating factors can trigger or exacerbate increases in ALA. The luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, pregnancy and the postpartum period are other times when people are more prone to attacks, stress, exhaustion, fasting, dietary restriction, smoking, excess alcohol, any of these can do it. There are some drugs, particularly any inducers of cytochromes P450, that are risky. In this case, the butalbital used for treating the migraine headaches was likely an important trigger of these attacks. In general, any drugs that induce cytochromes P450 are at least relatively contraindicated and should be used with great caution in patients with acute hepatic porphyrias. Now, there is a menstrual effect right after ovulation. There is a big burst of progesterone increases during this luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, and that is probably the main precipitant and the main trigger for some of whom every month during the second half of their menstrual cycles, they have acute porphyric attacks. Oftentimes, they just think they have severe menstrual symptoms and the diagnosis is missed for far too long. Among the drugs, the common ones are the barbiturates, trimethoprim, birth control pills, excess alcohol. There are a number of known safe drugs based upon long experience. They include aspirin, acetaminophen, phenothiazines, penicillins and their derivatives, glucocorticoids, insulin, atropine, cimetidine, and the list is more extensive. The key points relevant to this case are that several factors can trigger an increase in ALA and PBG, which may precipitate attacks in individuals with AHP. Strategy to prevent AHP attacks should be discussed with all patients with a confirmed diagnosis of AHP. Michael, 
31-year-old man with a 12-year history of smoking, recurring pain for 10 years, and he manages on and off with NSAIDs and opioids. He has concerns that he is becoming dependent on the opioids. On exam, blood pressure is elevated, heart rate is definitely elevated, and he appears anxious and sweating. He complains of chronic pain, requiring this chronic use of the combination of NSAIDs and opioids, has a normal CBC. The urine is reddish-brown but without cells or protein. The drug screen is positive for opiates and marijuana, THC. Liver chemistry is normal. Subsequent labs results reveal that he has a markedly elevated urinary PBG. Now, AHP is missed or misdiagnosed mainly because the symptoms of acute attacks can be caused by many other things than acute hepatic porphyria. Second, the symptoms are variable. So no single symptom or constellation of symptoms is universal or pathognomonic in all patients. The family history is not very helpful. About a third of the time, there is no family history of disease because perhaps the disease has been latent or perhaps this is a new mutation. At other times, people who claim or have been told that they have acute hepatic porphyria in their histories turn out not to have porphyria. The other big reason is that the wrong tests are ordered and or the test results are not available promptly. The urine has to be sent off. It takes days to a week or even 10 days for the results to come back. And by the time the results come back, the patient is long gone and nobody really follows up on it. Timely diagnosis, however, is definitely associated with better outcomes. So among those who had previously been diagnosed, they were far less likely to require ICU admissions. They had shorter hospital stays. They were far less likely to develop severe hyponatremia than those who had not previously been diagnosed. So certainly making the diagnosis and knowing the diagnosis is of great importance in dealing with these patients. In order to try to prevent recurrent attacks, one can do a number of things. First and foremost, stop any of the triggers. Carbohydrate loading, there is a glucose effect on hepatic ALA synthase so that adequate glucose or metabolizable carbohydrate will downregulate that first and rate-controlling enzyme in the pathway. So we do recommend glucose to people during acute attacks and maintaining at least 300 grams of carbohydrate day in and day out. However, once an attack has gotten underway, unfortunately, carbohydrate loading is not tremendously effective. Prophylaxis for cyclic attacks, some women fortunately will respond well to GNRH analogs, and there definitely is a role for heme prophylaxis to prevent attacks. It's actually quite highly effective. With long-term use, there is a risk of iron overload because heme is 9% iron by weight. Gavasarin is a very exciting drug that has proven to be highly effective in preventing and decreasing the frequency of frequent attacks of porphyria. It's given once monthly, and it generally has been well-tolerated. So again, to summarize, several factors can trigger increases in ALA and PBG, which may precipitate attacks in individuals with AHP. For example, smoking, 
excess alcohol, binge alcohol use, crash dieting, and medications, especially barbiturates, hydantuins, other inducers of P450s. Late or misdiagnosis of AHP is common and frequently results in unnecessary medical procedures. The strategies to prevent acute hepatic porphyrias should be discussed with patients with a confirmed diagnosis of AHP, including lifestyle modifications and therapeutic interventions. Such options should include avoidance of these triggers, use of liberal glucose and carbohydrate loading early in attacks, consideration of GnRH analogs to suppress the endogenous female sex hormone cycles, the use of intravenous heme, including prophylactic heme, and the use of this RNA interference therapy, Gavasarin. Carolyn is a 42-year-old woman with a history of polycystic ovary syndrome and endometriosis, but has finally been diagnosed with AHP after being hospitalized four times in the past 14 months. She has a history of irregular periods and infertility. She underwent gastric bypass at age 27, lost a substantial amount of weight, and her periods for a while became regular. In the past 14 months, she required four visits to the emergency department for severe abdominal pain. She had a seizure at the first visit and was started on phenytoin, a drug that is very strongly contraindicated in anybody with acute hepatic porphyria because it will lead to marked upregulation of ALA synthase 1 and marked increase in ALA and PBG and is a major trigger for recurrent and ongoing symptoms. She continued to require these ED visits for unexplained abdominal pain, chest pain, CNS symptoms with tunnel vision and confusion, and also had cardiac failure with a low ejection fraction. Finally diagnosed, but it took longer than it really should have. So what are the options for AHP treatment? Well, heme was the first specific treatment beyond giving glucose. Intravenous heme is derived from whole blood of humans. It acts to limit hepatic or merosynthesis of porphyrin due to repression of ALA synthase 1, that first and rate controlling enzyme. Usually requires daily doses for three to six days, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. There is a long-term possibility of iron overload, so monitoring of serum ferritin levels, especially with repeated use, is a very good idea. Gavasarin is this exciting siRNA. It can now be given once monthly by injection and is generally well tolerated, although there is the possibility of adverse effects on liver function, renal function, and also homocysteine. The liver transplant remains a treatment of last resort. There haven't been well-controlled, placebo-controlled trials of heme, but there are studies to indicate effectiveness. One such study was of 111 patients with 305 acute attacks, successfully treated, not every time, but 87% of the time with intravenous heme. And there were some patients in whom the heme was not successful. Prophylactic use for more than a month was given to 31 patients in this retrospective series. And it was, again, highly effective, although not 100% effective in preventing recurrent acute attacks. The most common side effects of intravenous heme, headache, 
fever, especially with repeated use, infusion site reactions. So we recommend administering this via PIC line or a central venous line. Most of us prefer to reconstitute the heme with human albumin because we found that that mitigates thrombophlebitis and loss of peripheral venous access. It also stabilizes the heme and makes it safe for a longer period of time after it's been reconstituted. There is an anticoagulant effect of heme, but it's minor unless people are also receiving Coumadin, heparin, and so on. It's not a good idea to be giving therapeutic doses of anticoagulants along with intravenous heme because there may be excess bleeding. Gavasarin has been shown to be highly effective in both a phase 2 and a phase 3 trial. In the phase 3 trial, a total of 94 subjects were enrolled. It went on for 36 months with a 6-month double-blind randomized placebo-controlled period and then a 30-month open-label extension. And the efficacy assessments were the annualized attack rate, AAR, defined as attacks requiring hospitalization, urgent health care visits, or IV heme, annualized days of heme in use, urinary levels of ALA and PBG, and patient-reported outcomes. And it's striking how effective Gavasarin proved to be. So in the continuous Gavasarin patients, there were zero annualized attack rates. And in the crossover, in the placebo arm in the first six months, the attack rate was 10.65. In the Gavasarin, there was an 87% decrease down to 1.35 attacks in the six-month period. There was a marked and almost immediate and sustained reduction in urinary ALA and PBG. Over time, the people that were receiving placebo for six months had essentially no change in markedly elevated levels. And as soon as they moved over to the open label phase and began receiving gavasarin, their excretions of ALA and PBG fell almost immediately to normal or nearly normal, as had been the case for those that had begun receiving gavasarin at the start of the double-blind period. There were certainly marked improvements in quality of life comparing continuous gavasarin to placebo crossover. Once people crossed over from placebo to gavasarin, their quality of life rapidly improved and markedly, and this was sustained for the entire 30 months of the open label. There were far fewer days of heme in use necessary in those receiving gavasarin versus placebo as well, with almost 100% of people requiring no heme at all by months 24 to 30 of the open-label extension. The drug gavasarin overall is safe, although there are certainly injection site reactions that are common. They're usually mild. There are some risks of increased liver tests and adverse effects on renal function with an elevation of creatinine and a decrease in the GFR. So it is important to monitor those during treatment. So the goal of treatment is to reduce the activity of hepatic ALA synthase 1 and stop the attack as quickly as possible. The options will depend on symptoms, but heme remains the treatment of first choice. It's very effective in decreasing ALA synthase 1 with general improvement in symptoms, usually after three to five days of daily intravenous heme.
RNA interference therapy certainly has been shown to reduce ALA and PBG levels. Thus far, kevasorin has not really been tested or approved for the treatment of acute attacks, but for prevention of recurrent frequent attacks. And it does significantly reduce the annualized attack rate in people with frequent and recurrent attacks. Liver transplantation remains a last resort, but does remain effective. Will is a 42-year-old man with IBS who's been hospitalized four times in the past 14 months. When seen, his blood pressure was elevated, his heart rate was elevated. He was receiving loratadine and fluoxetine and was using recreational marijuana. His hemoglobin was slightly low, his weight count slightly elevated, liver functions normal. Serum creatinine was borderline elevated at 1.4 with a mildly decreased GFR. He's diagnosed with IBS and is currently hospitalized for suspected appendicitis, but recent laboratory results reveal that what he really has is acute hepatic porphyria. Hospitalization is usually required because there's a risk of seizures and IV therapies are important as part of the treatment. Certainly, any unsafe medications should be stopped and avoided, and hyponatremia should be avoided, and if present, should be corrected appropriately, as should hypomagnesemia. There are a number of strategies to downregulate hepatic ALA synthase 1. Carbohydrate loading is not tremendously effective. It's a rather weak effect. Much more effective is intravenous heme. Gavasarin is also very effective, recently approved, and liver transplant as a treatment of last resort for intractable attacks. IV heme is taken up by hepatocytes and enters an intracellular regulatory heme pool that downregulates the synthesis of ALA synthase, this first and rate-controlling enzyme of the biosynthesis of heme, and thus decreases all of the downstream effects of excess ALA, PBG, and so on, which are responsible for the symptoms, probably mainly ALA, delta amino acid. The mechanism of gavasarin is that it is bound specifically to a galactose-containing carbohydrate that is taken up highly selectively and specifically by receptors on hepatocytes called ACL or glycoprotein receptors. The complex gets into the cells and the gavasarin is cleaved by an enzyme called dicer, leading to single-stranded siRNA that is then incorporated into an RNA-induced silencing complex that specifically interacts with ALA synthase RNA, degrading it and leading to a marked down-regulation of the production of the ALAS1 protein. Key points, acute attacks usually require hospitalization and supportive care measures. The goal of treatment is to reduce the activity of hepatic ALA synthase 1 and stop the attacks as quickly as possible. Options will depend on symptoms, but typically include glucose and carbohydrate loading, intravenous heme for people with frequent recurrent attacks, RNA interference therapy, and still as a last resort when all else fails, consideration for liver transplantation. To conclude, the acute porphyrias are not considered often enough in the differential diagnosis of commonly seen symptoms, such as abdominal pain. 
Misdiagnosis of AHP is common, frequently resulting in unnecessary medical procedures, severe pain, emotional stress, depression, anxiety, and reduced patient quality of life. Symptomatic attacks occur primarily in females during their childbearing years with a primary symptom of abdominal pain. Screening for elevated PBG is not part of the standard workup for such symptoms, and we need to be thinking of the diagnosis more often and screening for porphyrolinogen in the urine more often than we are. We should consider screening, even if the level of clinical suspicion is not particularly high, because the clinical picture is not specific and often not highly suggestive of the diagnosis, especially if you're not thinking of the possibility of the diagnosis. Delayed diagnosis and untreated attacks can result in irreversible long-term neurologic damage and even death. So making a diagnosis can be life-changing and even life-saving. Many of the medications used to treat the nonspecific symptoms of porphyria are drugs that can actually precipitate or worsen acute attacks, so being cautious in the use of drugs in such patients remains a very good idea. Acute attacks frequently require hospitalization and supportive care measures. The goal of treatment is to reduce the activity of hepatic ALA synthase and stop the attack as quickly as possible. Prior to the approval of gavosterin, Treatment options for recurrent attacks for AHP were limited and disease management focused on avoidance of attack triggers and use of IV glucose or heman. Long-term glycerin so far has had an acceptable overall safety profile, reducing attack frequency, markedly reducing the need for recurrent heme use, and decreasing the severity of pain and with marked improvements in the overall quality of life. That ends our discussion for today. We hope that you found the activity informative and useful to your practice. We thank you very much for participating and for your interest. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DQY860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Al Nilam Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.